1: In, Are
0: fashion? in fashion? Being having a big business and making lots of stuff has never been a motivation for us. The, how I measure my success with success of my brand is nothing to do with how many stores or how much stuff you make or how much reach you have. It's entirely around just whether the product's good and whether there's a community of people who also like it. And it's nice to be able to make a buck at the end of that and crucial to make, you know, speaking of sustainability, you need to sustain a Yeah, that's business.
1: My heels are killing me. Hi, I'm Sonia Sly, and this is a bonus episode, lucky you, of Heels, recorded during ID Fashion Week at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. Now, apologies for the quality of audio as it was recorded live, and it's an interview with designer Karen Walker, where she was a guest judge at the ID International Emerging Designer Awards as part of ID Fashion Week. And I started with a bit of a fun question. If you had no option but to lose one of your senses because it would save the world, which
0: one would it be and why? No, I, I need touch because you're know, feeling fabrics. I need my nose because we make fragrance. I need my eyes because everything we do is to do with eyes. I, I need my hearing because music's very important to me. So I guess taste, but then what's life when you can't taste the wine at the end of the day
1: or the. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's a bit of a tough call. And just so you know, Karen wanted a sixth sense. Talk about Cheeky. You have continued to raise the bar in the industry Mm. and you have built this incredible empire. I don't know if you see it in that way, but having visited your Auckland um, workroom, it is a buzzing, humming machine, but at the same Mm. time, it feels very much like a family. Mm. I mean, how many people are part of the Karen Walker world in mm. terms of the number of designers the people working on the floor
0: five designers working in different areas, five, six, thirty people in our head office in Auckland Who that covers you know, production dispatch, media PR, design product development, one of our design team uh, who's been on the team with us, she's been on the team with us for a long time, that's like six weeks with us and then six weeks back in London. And she works with a couple of other designers in the UK, and she said that what we've got is really so rare in the industry these days, which is we've got a fully functioning design studio and sampling facility. We have eight slash nine incredibly skilled machinists, in our studio who are just there to make product as we wish. We've got two fantastic pattern makers dedicated cutter, two dedicated sample room directors managers plus the design team on top and that's really unheard of in the fashion industry these days because it's exceptionally expensive but that's what you need in order to make work of a certain quality the norm in most companies is the designer will do a sketch that will get sent to a factory somewhere, probably in China turned into a pattern, turned into a first sample, sent back for a review, It's a fitting, a couple of tweaks, and then you get a second go, and that's it, because that's the cheap way to do it. Well, actually, the norm in the industry is buy a bunch of samples and drop them off in Shenzhen on the way home. But for, even for studios, whether, say, we're a design studio, the very best you'll get is a, is a sketch and two samples. And for us, we, we might have nine goes at something before it's perfect. We just keep you know, invest a lot of money in that facility so that we can keep questioning the whether the design's it's best or not. And that's really unusual. And then also that team, many of whom have been with us over ten years, some over fifteen years. Yeah, you know, they know the product intimately, they know the archive and the, the body of work intimately. We've got a huge archive and in, in our warehouse space, so we can go and pull on on things that we've done in the past and our team already know the inside them inside and out. And so you really get a different quality work, I think, when you work in that way. And and a real dedication to it as well, dedication to the craft.
1: Because Benny yesterday talked about over the years having to pair their business back. So for you, do you see the Karen Walker the staff, do you see that expanding? Like, where are you at with that?
0: For that design studio facility, I don't think it, ever, it, would, it needs to expand. It's, it's like the perfect size for us. But, yeah, most people might have had one 10 years ago or even five years ago, and now they're gone. Yeah, we really value that, that side of our business. I'm aware every single day that not many people have that luxury. Of being able to really um, craft and refine, and work with a room full of incredibly talented people, who also bring ideas to it. You know, we want ideas from all our teams. So sometimes we'll give quite a loose sketch and a sort of first thought on something, say to our machinists, "What do you think?" And they'll come back with like five or six different ideas about an uh, way into a frill or you know some sort of detail. And that's um, you know when you've got that amount of knowledge, like. You know, 100 years of experience in the room. Yeah, a a garment might take you know 50 hours of pattern making to really refine. That's a big investment. Mm -hmm. Not many people do that, and that's why some works at a different level. Yeah, Yeah, it does feel like a luxury.
1: And yeah, I mean a privileged place to be and to be able to have that creative freedom to just keep reworking and reworking and not feeling precious about any particular design.
0: Often you'll revisit three months or six months or nine months later. Because we do four collections a year for the Ready to Wear. So there's always two, two or three collections up on the board. So like right now we're really getting into the nuts and bolts of what will be delivered into store in January. Into exactly the fabrics and the cuts and the details and briefing patterns and so on. But there's also what's going to be delivered into store in March. That's kind of working a little bit further down the wall of like first thought. That's all the fabric designs already done and first thoughts around fabrications and, and silhouettes. And then also in the head, what's going to be talking into store in June? Already thinking about that. So you've got to think quite a long way out with fabric prints, especially. You've got to think a long way out.
1: You have the brand stocked all around the world. Has it been a natural progression to look to Asia and how, how do you approach that market? For instance, do you have particular pieces in each collection that you just know will do really well over over there?
0: Yeah, you never really know anything. Okay. <laughs> you kind of get a feeling for it and then you go and they, they come back and they go, oh, we'll have two. And you're like, oh, I thought you were really going to love that. Japan Japan's always been a really good market for us. It's always felt kind of like home. And I think because... I don't know, there's something about our sl- the, the chic plus eccentric kind of field in our handwriting that just really clicks in that market. So yeah, we opened a store there April last year. And I'm going up there in a couple of months' time. I was there when we opened, and, and I'll go up there again soon. And yeah, just, it's, you know, it's a really, Tokyo is such a great city. I've been to lots of cities in Japan, but Tokyo, obviously, that's like fashion center. Very natural city for us to be in. I've always loved Tokyo.
1: So you come back feeling inspired with new ideas? Yeah, yeah you always come back with something from Japan. Mm. And
0: even now, when fashion is quite homogenized now compared to how it once was, you know, it's becoming so much more the same everywhere you go. Even, in the, even set against that landscape, Tokyo still has something other. You still go there and you go, yeah, you could drop me in the middle of Ginza, blindfold on and I could tell you within a second where I am style-wise there's something quite specific.
1: Mm. And I imagine it's really important for you to keep being inspired but do you ever have moments when you are when the inspiration is just not there and you are struggling? No there's always ideas and we've got such a
0: great creative team that if somebody's like feeling a bit tired or a bit slow but like I don't know what we're doing with this somebody else will have an idea. So no, that's never a problem. Shortage of ideas is never a problem in our studio. It's working through that and editing that so you don't just kind of go, oh, let's develop 600 different designs because there's just not the time to do that. It's kind of, There's always lots of ideas up on the wall. It's then about editing them back. And...
1: So growing a brand that started in New Zealand, growing it into an international force, what are the pressures and expectations that you are constantly under in terms of having to juggle you know, stockists and, and mm-hmm. social media and the weight of everything that is kind of becoming this cumulative thing mm. in the fashion industry that is just putting so much pressure on designers and brands today.
0: There's always been pressures. Pressures now might be slightly different to what they were in 1950. There's always pressures, pressures in any business and in any category. And how do we juggle it? I think I think a lot of how we manage cope with that is just... Good systems, generous timelines. <coughs> I don't like rushing. Um, yeah, I don't think you get your best work when you when you're up against ridiculous deadlines. So we make sure that we've got plenty of time for product development, because it all comes down to the product, ultimately. You can wrap anything you like around around it, any amount of bells and whistles and in Instagram posts, but it's not going to help if the product's rubbish. One of the most important things within our organization is to have Adequate time to make the product good, because it all comes back to the product.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You can't you can't trick people into liking stuff that's just not good. So you've always got to come back to that.
1: It's a very hard time to be in the fashion industry at the moment. I think everybody's probably feeling the effects of
0: it. I don't think it's any harder than ever. It's just different. You've got the whole world that you can speak to, or not. You know, if you want it. There's not one path like there was once upon a time. You can kind of come into this business in any way you like. Uh, yeah, we do. Um, yeah, we're working with at the moment with a brand. In our stores, we sell our product. We also sell other people's product, especially in our new market store. We, it's called Play Park by Karen Walker, and, and it's all about having different brands in there that just things that we like. And we're working with at the moment with a girl who has a brand called The Knitter, and it's hand big chunky oversized hand knit sweaters. She has like. Ten or fifteen knitters in Auckland who knit for her, and she's got very cool designs, great colorist, great silhouettes, a big following. And yeah, they're expensive because they're hand, hand so They're seven fifty to eight fifty New Zealand retail, which for an audience that's used to being able to buy a sweater for maybe twenty dollars, that seems very expensive. But there's a reason it's eight hundred and fifty dollars because somebody sat there and knitted it. But so my point is, she's one girl. She works out of a flat, or I think she stores some wool at her parents' house, and she's got these like 10, 15 ladies who knit for her, and we did a little collab with her for the beginning of autumn, where we bought, I think, 16 of her sweaters, mostly colours that were specific to us, and colour mixes is specific to us. After maybe a week, we had one left, so, you know, you don't need to be big, you don't need to be... Fast, yeah, you know, she's slow as well because hand knitted. So we place an order. It's like, oh, you'll have that in four months. Mm-hmm. So okay, that's fine. That's the time it takes. That's the time it takes. My point is, you can do it in any way. You know, yes, it's hard, but it's also very open and don't need to be big or have a big bankroll or have. You know, just have to have a good idea. The rest of it's irrelevant, and then you can come into it however, however, it, whatever it takes to make that good idea a reality. People are just wanting interesting things done in a unique way.
1: So how important are those collabs for you? Because you've done quite a few of them now.
0: Mm. Yeah, we just want to make interesting product and work with interesting people. So for something you know, like the knitter, it's like I've just really liked what she was doing. One of our graphic designer came into work about a year and a half ago wearing one of her pieces. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, I guess you could analyse it and go, oh, it's about making the brand interesting or audience or what have you. But it's not really. It's just about we just want to make cool stuff that people will like, and that means not doing the same thing every single season and putting in little hand grenades of excitement out into the market. Mm -hmm. You know, in my world, I want classic things, but I also want to be
1: surprised. The the little face masks you made last year were a bit of a surprise. I quite like them, but I mean, obviously... Somebody
0: else had gone away and discovered that merino wool... Is like cuts out ninety nine point nine 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 percent of bacteria from the air and just attracts it like a magnet, and developed a lot of time, like years, into turning that into face masks. It's targeting primarily China, but also New Zealand and India and uh, Japan and you know going into lots of markets now. And for us, it was just like, well, it's just actually a really awesome product that's really incredibly made, and actually. A friend of mine the other day bought one because her sister's in the middle of chemo and she was told she can't basically go outside and breathe anything and if she does she'll get sick and so she needs to wear a mask and I was like oh didn't think of that changed her world you know we turn down nine things out of 10 because it's something I'm not because it might be something I'm not interested in or I don't feel I have something unique to say
1: that commitment I love that commitment and I think that says a lot about the brand and you can see it through every one of your collections and I think that's what has been the foundation obviously of its growth. Now we can't escape the fact that the Ethical, the 2018 Ethical Fashion Report came out you know, in terms of shift in thinking about environment sustainability, Mm. you know, whether it's politics or the social context of fashion that, you know, all of these things start to permeate the fashion industry Mm. and as you sort of see with a lot of the emerging designer collections, those things are very immediate in what the designers are expressing. Mm. For you as a, a brand that is established, how, what are the particular challenges that you're faced with in kind of moving the brand towards a way of thinking that is better for the environment or feels for you, you know, puts you in a place where you feel okay about being in the industry?
0: Number one thing is any any industry that's in the business of making things is having a cost. Sitting here right now, we're having a cost, breathing. So how do you live with that and do what you do in a way that you're comfortable with? And... The number one thing for us has always been that we make good product that is designed to have to lay in somebody's wardrobe for decades, if not lifetimes. I was at the hairdresser the other day, and the lady next to me said she'd, had, she'd bought a coat from us, an Italian wool flannel coat, ten years ago, and she'd just been about to pass it down to a second-hand shop, and her mother had seen it and went, oh, I, love, I want that coat, and had done some, you know, adjusted it to fit or what have you. Wearing it now. And that's exactly what we go into our product. That's why we spend so much money on making quality uh, designs and really invest in that and then invest in making them extremely well because we don't want to make disposable things. We want it to be in your wardrobe for years and then be passed down to somebody else. You know, my daughter's wearing a lot of my hand-me-downs, you now, and a few of them got holes, and oh, it's fine, it's for the weekend running around. So, yeah, the n- number one thing for me is we don't want it to be disposable. We don't want it to be for one season. We want it to be beautifully made. We don't want to fill your wardrobe with stuff, and we certainly don't want to fill landfills with stuff. We make very small amount. We have very few things that we design, and ready-to-wear, we make more than 100 of. It's very small runs. It's high, you know, high quality and very small runs. It's not about, for us, about selling lots. It's just less, you know, make make less stuff and make it really well and have it last. It's That's kind of crucial. It's part of our heartbeat. Where was I somewhere recently? Uh, I, was, I was doing a thing, a Q and a thing like this in Sydney, and somebody said something about... Um, yeah, you know, wanting the business to grow, or, and I was like, "That's never being having a big business and making lots of stuff has never been a motivation for us." The, how I measure my success or success of my brand is nothing to do with how many stores or how much stuff you make or how much reach you have. It's entirely around just whether the product's good and whether there's a community of people who also like it. And it's nice to be able to make a buck at the end of that. And crucial to make, you know, speaking of sustainability, you need to sustain a Yeah, a business it's not about being big and making lots and lots and lots it's about just making beautiful things that will be in your wardrobe for a long time and I'm hearing that more and more from when I speak to people that I've got a dress that or a pair of pants I bought in 2000 or whatever and I'm still wearing them and that's really what we set out that's at the heartbeat of everything we do okay
1: in terms of that transparency and that increasing demand for it, are you okay with that? I mean, do, do you, when you look to buy an item of clothing as well, go, well, I want to know where it's made?
0: Oh, yeah, I make those choices all the time. For me personally as a consumer, yeah. absolutely. God, yes. I, you know, I've never been a consumer who's like after have to make it cheaper and give me more of it. I live in a small house in Ponsonby. I don't have the space for more shit. Yeah, for me as a consumer, that's really important. I think that having, becoming more and more the norm, that people want transparency around what it is that they buy, no matter what that is. That's really important. Yeah, you know, for us as a brand, you know, if you go onto our CSR page and our website, we're very transparent about a lot of things and continuing to work on that. And then there's things where it's like, well, you know, I get why people would like to know the name of the factory that we work in to make our network, but we're a small company and that's an amazing factory and I'm not going to make that available so we've been working with them for 15 years and it's really you know they're really good it comes down to the individual brand how much you're prepared to make visible or not I think it's really good but there's only different brands have different like oh can I give that away can I give that away
1: now in terms of your own staff It seems like, you know, it's quite a nurturing environment, right? I hope
0: so. I can't give everybody, like, this is your career path the next 20 years. So I love it when I see people make the next step in their career, and maybe it's not with us, but it's with somebody else, and I've been one little rung in their career.
1: I mean, Rachel Mills was an example Mm. of that. For someone like Rachel to come and work for you... Mm that's a great thing for her career and then to go off and do her own thing. I mean, is, is that always Absolutely. in the back of the, your mind that you might actually lose really talented staff? Yeah, I don't really think of it as lose,
0: though. People always want a career path that's exciting, usually. Some people just want to stick their heads down and do their job excellently for 40 years, and that's great as well. have got a lot of those people, actually, who are just rocks. And other people want to go, oh, this is where I want to be, and I want to be here right now for whatever reason, learning or what have you, but long-term. I had a a new girl start in our dispatch uh, department a couple of weeks ago, like really entry-level, straight out of university. You want to get in the fashion business, honey? Sort out those plastic hangers over there. (laughs) And the first day I, I went and introduced myself to her and asked where she saw herself in 10 years. And I, I like to do that with everybody, actually, just so that I can get a sense around where do they want to be, just so I can keep that in mind whenever I'm working with them, really. I want to know what people's next steps are and help them to achieve that.
1: Give them opportunities to grow. Yeah,
0: and we do that a lot. You know, many people within our company have been in four or five or six different roles. Our um, jewellery designer, Jade, she started off as an unpaid intern I don't know, picking up pins. Then she was pretty good. She was really good at picking up pins. And we gave her an entry-level job in production when it came up. And then then she put her hand up and went, you know, I really want to be a designer. I'm like, okay, well, show me your work. And then she was like, and I started giving her briefs, like, okay, go away on the weekend. Come back over the weekend with 20 ideas around this thought. And, you know, 10 years later, she's, the last five, six years, Probably more she's been a really crucial part of our design team. So it's not in my interest to have people just, like, pigeonholed and then, okay, that's it, I don't have to think about you again. I like to see people expand and extend, and usually that benefits the company, out of it, or at least them, and that's a good thing.
1: What do you feel gives you a clue into the what the future might look like, you know, based on what you saw last night, in mm. terms of, like, ideas, maybe future trends, what the thinking is going to be for the designers who are about to enter the industry. Mm.
0: I think this is so varied. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't really one standout kind of trend in terms of the thinking. It was actually all really, really varied.
1: Obviously things are different now coming into the industry for these young people. What advantages or sort of disadvantages do you think that they have now that maybe you didn't have to face when you were coming out?
0: Oh, my God, well, the gatekeepers have gone. When I came into the industry in (laughs) the 1920s, it was very controlled. So you, you kind of had these gatekeepers between you and your customer or community. That just doesn't exist anymore. You know, there's a constant direct communication in every category, not just fashion. The gatekeepers have lost a lot of the power and a lot of the control as a result of that. But it's so diminished... You know, it's so much more about that immediate conversation with your community that you can have 24 7. That's the incredible thing about how the industry is right now. That's the, that's the bit I really love. That's a really incredible tool. Think of it like a campfire. I talk about our community around our campfire. But they could be sitting at 50 other campfires as well, very distracted and very bored, very easily bored little thumbs. They just want to keep moving. How do you keep the conversation engaged in the face of that? Yes, you've got their their eyes, you've got their thumbs for a second. Yes, it's a, it's a great tool to have. It gives you the entire world, but it also gives your community the entire world. So you've got to be just really interesting. That's what it takes. There's no shortage of great ideas out there. The gift for people coming into the industry now, people in the industry now, is... It's very easy to have that immediate and ongoing conversation with your community and to tell them what you've got that's going on. They're also having that conversation with a million other people. So yours has to be really good. But that's, that's what I find exciting. And because we're a company that's all about ideas and storytelling, I think of us as storytellers more than product makers. It suits us very nicely. But for other brands who may be not such good storytellers... I can see a struggle there.
1: Now, are there any questions from the audience?
0: One hand gone up, you you get to speak first.
1: So while there were a few questions from the audience, Karen was very candid and animated in telling us about her experience earlier this year as part of the Commonwealth Fashion Exchange.
0: The whole thing was actually completely bonkers. We got an email out of the blue from a PR company in the UK asking us if we'd be involved in this Commonwealth Fashion Exchange. We we're like, oh, that all sounds a bit hard and a bit difficult, and and you know, not much time, and red carpet. We don't do red carpet, and you know, you just know everyone's really busy. And then they came back and went, oh, you know, it'd be, can you rethink it? Be really good. And and at that point, our creative director said, you know, you've just made that decision by yourself. Why don't you just talk to your team about it? And I was like, oh, okay, that's a point. So. Gathered the some key people who'd have to be working on the project together and told them about it. And they're like, Are you out of your mind? Of course we have to do this. And I'm so glad they did, because it was one of the best things I've ever done, actually. The Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting was held in in London last month. As part of the lead up to that, um, Buckingham Palace wanted to do a project where they would highlight um, the Commonwealth and creativity. And, and so they worked with a PR company to come up with an idea, which was 52 countries in the Commonwealth, let's take designers from 26 of them and artisans from 26 of them and pair them up. And each of those couplings makes a, will make a red carpet gown using the designer skills and the artisan skills. I said, you know, uh, if we can work with Cook Islands to vai vai and vai, which is Cook Islands quilting, which is you know, big graphic shapes and strong colours and then gorgeous little blanket stitch rather stitching around it. And I've always wanted to do something in that area but never had the right project. And they're like, yeah, awesome. And so then I said to my team, Well you've got a week to find some incredible artisans here in Auckland who can partner with us on this. And they found, you know, in typical New Zealand fashion, it was like, oh my boyfriend's <laughs> Mum has a friend who blah blah blah. And within a week we had this incredible team. So Tacua Turia, who is the most inc- one of the most incredible women I've ever met, and uh, she was our lead artisan, and she had two people also sewing with her and then two support crew and they took on this project, which was really completely bonkers, and they didn't need to do it, but they did it because the culture of their society is very important to them, and they wanted to get it out there and also as a form of self expression and so together we made this dress, which was this Italian wool flannel, dusky pink. Strapless gown, sort of huge full length skirt with tons and tons of fabric in it. And then it was covered in these Cook Islands botanical motifs, signed different flowers from the Cook Islands. You know, jasmine, frangipani, orchid, hibiscus, different uh, types of stitchings so like chain stitch, feather stitch, mountain stitch, blanket stitch. And Takura and her team did all the stitching. It was a thousand hours of stitching. Wow. Uh, which they did over three weeks, or um, maybe it was more like five weeks over summer, to cancelled her holiday back to the Cook Islands, and they just hunkered down. And then two of the team were their support crew, so like playing the ukulele, singing, making lunch, making cups of tea. (laughs) And whenever I'd go and visit them in the house where they were making it, you know, it was just such joy. It was just this completely... never been quite in that environment where the work was also about just the sense of community and making a beautiful object and getting together and gossiping. And the last few days of the job, they came in and we set up a space for them. And there was this music coming through the whole building. It was just so good. And we made this beautiful dress together and sent it off to London. There was an official function at Buckingham Palace in the state rooms that the Queen hosted. But then she had Duchess of Cambridge and, and Countess of Wessex hosting on her behalf on the night and a Winter, kind of, all these beautiful dresses lined up, and designers, I think all the designers came, maybe one didn't, and I think maybe 15 of the artisans came, so it was like, everybody came, it was like 300 people in the, in the palace for this party. You know, I was like, oh, I'm not sure if I really want to go to that, and, and then I watched season two of The Crown, and I was like, okay, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fabulous party, and the dresses looked incredible we hosted Takua and brought her with us to London. And so she came to the, to the palace with me and, had, and you know, the Duchess of Cambridge was coming around talking to everybody and she was so interested in what we did. And Anna Winter said to Takua, I like your dress. And Takua goes, thanks, I made it myself. <laughs> the fabric she bought it a local fabric shop. was just gold. And Takua and I speak probably every two weeks, They're now doing classes in Tevai-Vai in a community space in South Auckland where they're getting people from any walk of life, any cultural community to come in and learn how to make Tevai-Vai. And yeah, that was her big thing, spreading the word and having Tevai-Vai continue into the next generation. And one of the things we did when we were in London was I'd be arranged to take her to um, the Oceania Department at the British Museum at their off-site storage facility at Blythe House and they had pulled out all their Tavai vai that they have in the British Museum. They've got about 12 Tavai vai So we got you know behind the scenes, which is fantastic. And with the head, the head curator for the Oceania department in their office, and then they'd roll out Tavai vai and Chukua would tell them what the flowers were and what the stitches were, and then she'd tell them how bad it was. After we left, she said to me, I think I just have to make them a really good one. And then the next week I got an email from the British Museum saying, do you think tevai to her would be open if we commissioned her to make it to bye-bye, like, to her standards, and she's just almost finished it. That was something other. That was completely outside of what we normally do. Probably the most rewarding thing I did last year. And it wasn't just about going to Backingham Palace and knocking back champagne for three hours. It was just about making this beautiful thing, which, actually, there's a few other things coming off that now as well that I can't talk about yet, but it's just kind of this... I don't know there know, just something so... Uh Just people really connected, and I'm very, very proud of that piece.
1: I'm Sonia Sly, and that was designer Karen Walker in a public Q&A session recorded live at ID Fashion Week in this bonus episode of My Heels Are Killing Me. Which also, incidentally, brings this season of My Heels Are Killing Me to a close. But I'll be back in September or around October with a brand spanking new season. So stay tuned for that. And in between, I'm beavering away on a brand new series based on women's suffrage, as this year marks 125 years since women received the right to vote in New Zealand. And just quietly, I've snuck in a few fashion stories too. (laughs) But in the meantime, here's something to keep you on your toes, or at least at the edge of your seat.
0: The night Dean Fuller Sands disappeared, he wasn't meant to be alone. So the fact Dean was fishing on his own when a rogue wave ripped him off the rocks at Fatipu was just horrible, dumb luck. At least, that's what everyone thought back then. And as the search for Dean went on, it never crossed anyone's mind that it could be murder. From Stuff and RNZ, this is Gone Fishing, a podcast by Amy Mars and me, Adam Dudding. Available from the 25th of June on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and other podcast providers, or from the Stuff and RNZ homepages. You can also hear it on air each night on RNZ National. Gone fishing. Mayhem. Murder. Maybe.